Welcome to the podcast on Sources of the Reign of Robert I and the Anglo-Scottish Wars of Independence, a podcast produced by the Arts and Humanities Research Council-funded project, The Community of the Realm in Scotland, 1249-1424, History, Law and Charters in a Recreated Kingdom. The project team is made up of historians from the Universities of Edinburgh, Glasgow and King's College London and is recorded in the King's Online studio at King's College London. Each week we take one of the important sources from the reign of Robert Bruce, King of Scots, from 1306 to 1329, and explain what it is, how it survives, and why it matters. I'm John Reuben Davis from the University of Glasgow, and this week we're meeting Alice Taylor, reader in medieval history, who'll be taking us through the 1318 legislation. So Alice, what is the 1318 legislation? Well, John, the 1318 legislation is, as its name might suggest, legislation issued uh, by a parliament of Robert I, King of Scots, starting on the 3rd of December 1318 and going on for the next few days. And it's interesting because it's the first clear-cut piece of surviving legislation that we have from Scotland which issues from parliament by something that is called a parliament. And who's there? We don't have freeholders yet attending or borough representatives, so we don't have non-nobles and people from towns. But we know that this is legislation that is issued by the king, but with the express counsel and consent of the bishops, abbots, priors, earls and barons, and, quote, all the community of our kingdom in our full parliament held at Scone by our royal authority in December 1318. It's actually quite a long piece of legislation. I mean, not long in accordance with today's standards, but long in accordance with 14th century standards, in that it's covering multiple topics. So it covers things like crime and how to capture criminals, but also how to litigate properly, to how men should conduct themselves in the army and what gear they have to have when they serve in the army. And it also covers things that we would probably now call pertaining to public security. So it's a really diverse piece of um, legislation. And the fact that it's issued at Schoon is quite important because that's where Robert himself had been inaugurated in rather uh, dubious circumstances um, and where, or rather controversial circumstances, Mm. I should say. And it's where it's the the tendency of his parliaments um, to be held. So whereas earlier kings had issued pieces of legislation um, at Perth, or at Stirling, Robert in general prefers issuing his legislation at Schoon. That's where he holds his parliaments. And that's a real sense of connecting himself with the very place of constituting kingship, because Schoon is the place where you have the royal mound, where traditionally kings of first Alaba and then Scotland were inaugurated. So it's a very kind of potent piece of legislation to demonstrate the authority of his kingship. So, does this survive in uh, original contemporary manuscripts? Well, it survives in loads of manuscripts, um, but we don't have the kind of original document or documents that issued from the assemblies. So, it, it survives in mostly manuscripts from the 14th to the 16th century as part of what, if you listen to the podcast on Regia Maestatum, that I kind of called the old law manuscripts that by the end of the 14th century and throughout the 15th century, this 1318 legislation of Robert Bruce has become part of the old law of the Kingdom of the Scots. But unlike Regiam, it also survives in two near-contemporary manuscripts, and that's actually really unusual for Scotland in this period. It's unusual Mm. to have 
copies of parliamentary legislation in the first place, and it's even more unusual to have copies of parliamentary legislation in manuscripts that seem so contemporary to Robert's reign. And these manuscripts are that's an early 14th century section of the cartulary, so the basically the book of documents and deeds of Arbroath Abbey, and a manuscript that was, we don't quite know where it was compiled, um, but we know it as the Air Manuscript, and it's housed in the National Records of Scotland. And it's called the Air Manuscript because we know that somebody in the 15th century who owned it probably was a member of the Guild Court uh, Air, but there's no reason to suggest that it was produced in Air. And what's interesting about this manuscript context, actually, is that what it's what it speaks to is that the 1318 legislation seems to have been putting forward a new way, or at least a more intensive way, of circulating parliamentary legislation. So the legislation actually not only says that this is a piece of legislation that has to be read and proclaimed publicly in all courts, whether they be local courts or central courts, but also in the courts of bishops, of abbots, of barons and earls, so anybody who has a court has to read out this copy of this legislation. And the legislation itself actually says, we're going to circulate a copy of this to everybody who needs to know, so that nobody can say, oh, I didn't know what the legislation said. So they're really making an explicit effort to say everybody needs to know the law. And if you don't know the law, this new law, there will be consequences for not knowing it. I see. So Do you think that helps shed some light on how this legislation survives at all? The fact that it survives at all is very interesting because the fact that it survives in one of the cartularies of Arbroath Abbey in a section probably put together under the command of the abbot, Bernard, who also happened to be Robert I's chancellor, so literally in charge of circulating this legislation in 1318 is kind of suggestive of this really quite central effort to circulate this and to keep the copies and it's also Arbroath Abbey is itself has a major court it would have been one of the courts whose basically litigants needed to know the the new content of the new law. Right so what was it that this new law said that was so important? Well, it's got lots. I mean, it's got lots of stuff in it. Um, it's got lots of stuff for the maintenance of law and order. Um, so it says wonderful things like you can't disturb a, a, a tracking dog. So a, a dog that might be coming through your land in pursuit of thieves. And this isn't just a dog. You know, this is like a band of mm. men trying to pursue a thief. Mm. There are all sorts of quite interesting things about the need to protect innocent parties. So there's a section in the legislation about debt, which says that. If somebody's in debt to you, you can't take basically anyone's chattels who you like, anyone's possessions to reclaim your debt. You can only take the possessions of either the principal debtor or his pledge. So the person who basically stood as security for the the debt in for the debt in the first place. And again, you might think, well, that's quite basic, but it's actually quite a big principle of essentially protection that this legislation is protecting people from just having their chattels taken away in order to repay the debts of somebody else. So it's it's doing all sorts of things in general for legal procedure. It seems to be doing quite a lot. So what can we say is the wider context for this 1318 legislation? Well, this is also where it gets really, really interesting because the context of issue of this legislation is pretty explosive because we're in December, at the beginning of December in 1318, and Robert's heir, who was his brother, Edward, um, had died 
uh, under two months previously, literally kind of leaving Robert temporarily without an heir because he doesn't have a son yet. And he's going to establish his, his grandson, Robert Stuart, as his heir, but Robert Stuart is a baby and anyway belongs to another noble family. So Robert is in an incredibly vulnerable position. He's also excommunicate and his kingship isn't recognised by the Pope. So 1318, he's basically, I mean, it started well with the recapture of Berwick, but then it kind of turned into a bit of a disaster because he's this kind of grand plan that he and his brother had. Um, so Edward Bruce dies when he's on campaign in Ireland um, after having been proclaimed king in Ireland. So the Bruce brothers kind of have this plan to restore, essentially, not only the high kingship of Ireland, but also if Edward Bruce does succeed Robert, then that puts the kingships of Ireland and Scotland into the hands of one man, which is this kind of extraordinary plan that they seem to have um, developed together to create a real power base to rival that um, kind of of the English. And, and suddenly, within months, this has all totally unravelled um, through the death of Edward Bruce. Um, and there's also the, the looming figure of Edward Balliol in the background here, um, and the fact that there are many nobles in Scotland who support Edward Balliol, who is the son of John Balliol, um, King of Scots, who support Edward Balliol as opposed to Bruce. And so this explains in some way some of the chapters in the 1318 legislation, which are really focused on internal strife. There's one which kind of says, that's pretty banal really, which just says, look, if you're having a quarrel with somebody, you can't just inflict damage on them, you can't just pursue them by violence, um, you have to make a complaint in the king's court, which you think kind of eminently reasonable. But that's also inserting the royal judicial system into a system of dispute settlement that didn't necessarily previously rely on the royal judicial system to be there. So it's actually quite a controversial measure, but it's actually saying, look, if you've got a quarrel, you do it in my courts, not anything else. But there's another clause where, which literally stops people from saying anything bad about Robert. <laughs> so there's a clause in it which, which says that if anybody should be a conspirator or an inventor of tales or rumours, which results in discord arising between the Lord King, that's Robert, and his people, his populace. If anyone is found doing this, he shall be charged with this offence and taken and put in prison for the king to do as he wants with. So the upshot here is that anyone who's found spreading rumours will be put in prison, You know, which, first of all, <laughs> demonstrates that there's this huge diversity of political views in Scotland, You know, that Robert's kingship is not uncontroversial at all, even within Scotland. But it's also trying to, trying to control that through recourse to law. And that's what's really, really interesting here. So that the first of these chapters, which is saying you have to do your complaints in my court, seems to be giving people options, but is also still using the law as a form of control. But the second, it's quite clear, you know, law is just being used as a form of control in order to stamp out discord against what is clearly like a very politically volatile few months in the second part of 1318. Right. So do you think you could sum up for us what are the sort of main interesting points about the 1318 legislation and why it matters for us? Um, it's a really good question. In some way, it's, I should say as a document, it's full of really interesting symbolism. 
of just to give you an example, not only is this legislation issued at Schoon, it uses the language of the community of the realm, but it's also dated to the Sunday after the feast of St Andrews. Um, you know, was this by chance? Well, probably not. The figure of St Andrews plays a very, very important role in the Declaration of Arbroath, written a few years later, also in support of Robert's kingship. Um, but Andrew is also on the seal of the Guardians, which which has the, the, the reading around the edge of that seal saying, Andrew, be the leader of the compatriot Scots. So the choice of appointing this parliament with explicit reference to the feast day of St Andrews at Schoon, these are not these are not coincidences. You know, this is a government that is very, very well aware of how to make the power and authority of that government read um, in very, very, very powerful ways by saying, this is a very important parliament where we will reform the law of Scotland and we will have it, you know, on essentially the feast of St Andrews at the heart of Scottish kingship. It's pretty impressive. It's also important because it is the first clear cut piece of legislation issuing issued from parliament. And it's also important because it speaks to this way in which um, Robert's government are using law to control politically at a time of great volatility. It also has quite a few important points of law that end up being quite important to the later medieval Scottish common law. But the main thing is, is that this is a politically embedded document. It's trying to use law, not only to sort out points of law, but also to do things politically, which is really interesting. Right. Well, one final leading question. <laughs> Where can we find this 1318 legislation? Well, the full text and tra- it's actually very easy to find. The full text and translation um, is at a site, a website called the Records of the Parliaments of Scotland, which is online at www.rps.ac.uk, and you just search your way through it. And the Records of the Parliaments of Scotland um, was a project produced um, by the Scottish Parliament Project, and run at St Andrews during the first decade um, of the 21st century, um, who edited and translated the texts of all the pre-Union, so the pre-1707 Scottish parliaments, um, and put them online. It's a really wonderful endeavour, so do go and look at it anyway at www.rps.ac.uk. Well, Dr Alice Taylor, thank you very much indeed. If you like this podcast, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, Follow the project on Twitter at COTR2020 and visit our website online at www.cotr.ac.uk.